0: And welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And this is the second part of our little mini-series on social life in the Anthropocene, in which I'm going to be talking about the cultural changes that occur uh, in this time period where human activity is having an increasing effect on the natural world. This is not all a tragedy, of course. I think that the modern world is fantastic and has a great realm uh, for human freedom. However, there's a deep cost to this. Not only an environmental cost, but also a personal cost. One of the themes that will run through this little mini-series is the push and the pull of this freedom that the Anthropocene brings, because it seems that with a lot of uh, bits of liberation that this new high energy materialistic uh, method of consuming and producing gives, it also takes away. If you look at it from one way, the modern world is fantastic. We have modern dentistry, we live long lives, we don't toil as hard as our ancestors did, and we have a lot more stuff. But look at it from another way, and the Anthropocene, the modern world seems really dire. Not only are we living on ecologically borrowed time, But some people are miserated, unable to work, hungry, demoralized, addicted to drugs. And in this episode, I'm going to look at these two poles, freedom and necessity, from the perspective of food. The background to this, of course, is uh, the previous episode where we framed this new world of the Anthropocene as one in which people have broken out of the Malthusian trap. By which I mean it seems that the world population is no longer under the same kinds of ecological constraints that it had been since the invention of agriculture. So let's start with necessity, because this whole system, the agricultural system that allowed people to break out of the Malthusian trap, rests on an agricultural division of labor. Things are grown where they are grown best and then they're shipped to where there is enough demand. This is Economics 101. Of course, a couple things changed in this time period that make Economics 101 a lot different. The first is uh, the greater increase in transportation, which lowered costs, which meant that things could be grown further away. The second is that you get new kinds of plants. So let's look at a couple of these. Probably the most important historically is sugar. Before Columbus first sailed to the Americas, there were sugar plantations uh, made by Spain and Portugal off of the coast of Africa, in an archipelago in the Atlantic Ocean called the Canary Islands, and also the island chain of the Madeiras. And the reason why Europeans were growing sugar on these islands and not on Europe was for some of the reasons that you might expect. It's nicer on those islands. The islands had a good climate. It was warm with plenty of rain in a way that, you know, there wasn't a good climate for sugar uh, over in sometimes cold Europe. But sugar was made on these islands not just because of the sun and the rain, it was ecologically possible to grow sugar, say, in southern Spain. One of the big reasons why sugar was grown there is because sugar needs labor and energy above all things. It's really labor intensive to grow. You need to be constantly in the field sweating and it's hard work. It's work that you basically have to force other people to do. And the solution was to create pockets of forced labor on these islands that would then exploit the forests on the islands for the fuel that was needed to boil the sugarcane down into sugar. And this, of course, led to a decimation of the populations on these islands, and also a denuding of these islands of trees. This is sometimes used as the prologue for the story of the ecological history of how Europeans went from being Europeans to being a world power. These islands stripped of their people, stripped of their fuel. After Eurasia and uh, the New World were linked up, sugar production moved with the Europeans Uh, to the islands in the Caribbean, and they used the same sets of practices, except the inputs changed. Instead of using native labor, uh, all the natives kind of died off, and so European sugar plantation owners started to ship slaves from Africa. And these slaves had a horrible time of it. Not only uh, was the work incredibly hard and often the food not great, but the way that sugar's made with lots of irrigation and lots of good heat made sugar plantations a hotbed of yellow fever and other mosquito-borne illnesses. Basically, where you got sugar, you got death. And the story is that African muscle power was shipped over to the Americas, so that sugar could be grown to feed the workers in England and France and Germany. And there's a lot of commodities that we can tell this same story of. Cotton has a similar story, where uh, there's cotton plantations run by slaves in the Caribbean to feed the factories of England. uh, These uh, uh, cotton plantations are moved to the New World in the late uh, 18th century when there's slave revolts and people get freaked out. Coffee's a similar sort of story. Uh, You also there have a dislocation between the drinkers of coffee and the makers of coffee. And once the railroad and the steamship vastly drop the price of bulk goods transport, you get this division of agricultural labor Uh, hitting things that are not as high price, hitting things that have a much lower uh, price weight ratio, things like wheat and cows. After 1870, people in London are eating wheat that comes from the Ukraine and from the Midwest of America. People are eating cows that come from Australia and Argentina, much like today. The leather from cows are being used in the belts of factories in Birmingham and Manchester. And this is because of this worldwide global division of agricultural labor. But it might be interesting to tell a story in which uh, this agricultural division of labor doesn't affect the metropole. It doesn't affect the Europeans who are eating all this stuff. And for that, we can talk about tapioca, also known as manioc. If you're like me, you probably don't pay a ton of attention to tapioca. It's as Bland as tapioca. You probably have a lot of trouble imagining what tapioca looks like. Uh, you might like be imagining that weird kind of fisheye pudding that you get uh, in elementary school. Well, tapioca is a root. It's the food of the Tipu people in Brazil, and it spread with slavery to Africa and then to Asia. And today it is a staple crop of one-fifth of the entire world. That means that one-fifth of the entire world relies on this plant that you probably can't imagine in your head for food. And this part of the world is the poorest part of the world. And why is that? Well, manioc and tapioca, they're the same thing, uh, uh, is a really, really good crop. It thrives in poor soil. You don't really need to do a lot. You just kind of plant it and forget it. Uh, it has really high yields uh, and it can be left in the ground for months without storage. You basically plant manioc and there it is until you need to eat it. Uh, it's rich in carbohydrates, second only to sugarcane. Um, and it like makes it, it, it tastes pretty good. It's comforting. It has what I have read as a melting starchiness. But it's also kind of horrible. Uh, It degrades the soil, and it's poisonous to eat unless you process it a ton. So it's really labor-intensive. To get out the hydrocyanic acid from it, you need to soak it, grate it, boil it, ferment it, and then press it, uh, all to eat it, which takes a ton of labor. It spread through the world by the Portuguese slave ships that went from Brazil over to Africa to get slaves to make sugar and coffee. And these Portuguese slave ships took dried manioc on board to fatten up the slaves at port because they had an interest in the slaves' well-being. They wanted the slaves to not die because the slaves were worthwhile for them. And they took manioc as this first taste of servitude, this, you know, uh, Gatorade of slavery. And as manioc was being used to feed the slaves in the ports of Africa, it also started to spread inwards into the interior of Africa, you know, ahead of the slave catchers, because it was such a useful crop. And in a real great historical irony, this crop freed up men who were in charge of agriculture to do things that men like to do. Uh, Because it was so easy to grow, men ended up having a lot of spare time if they switched from growing yams to growing manioc. And what men did in their spare time is they waged war, which created slaves, which were shipped off to the coast, to be met by Portuguese slave ships, to be fed on manioc, taken across the ocean, and put into plantations to make sugar and coffee for Europe. And tapioca or manioc or whatever you want to call it moved again to Asia in the 19th century where it was grown as a cash crop and it found its way into British cuisine as uh, this cheap alternative to wheat. Uh, used as the basis of milk puddings. It was considered a nursery food, a food for children, because it was bland and starchy and easy on the tummy. And so the big story here is that slaves were being fed the cheap calories of tapioca to produce the more expensive calories of sugar for European stomachs. So let's move from necessity onto this other pole of freedom. And if you look at this process of uh, the agricultural division of labor of the world from the perspective of European cities, everything looks pretty good. With the expansion of agricultural markets and improvements in agriculture, people stop having to worry about what is known euphemistically in history books as subsistence crises, Uh, but you and I can call hunger because there isn't enough food And food starts to transform once it stops being this thing that people have to worry about all the time. And there's two parts of this transformation. In some times, and with some people, food is turned into an art And in some times, and with some people, food is turned into a science. As we talk more and more about these processes through the 19th century, you're going to see that this division of things into arts and sciences happens again and again and again. So let's take the art thing first, because I think after discussing slavery and tapioca, we need a little bit of levity. So I want to discuss the rise of the modern restaurant which we can think of starting in the 19th century. Of course, people had always been eating out, uh, but what happens in the 19th century is that you get a lot of the things that we associate with modern dining. You go to a specific place where you sit privately and you get a menu from which you can order a bunch of different things that fit your individual palate. You go there to be in public, but also to be in kind of this semi-private social space where you and your dining companions can talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. Seen by other people, but not necessarily communicating with them. Visible to strangers, in other words, but not affected by them. This, by the way, is going to be one of the key attitudes towards uh, global modernity that we're going to see. This feeling of being in public and visible, but not being a main character in the scene. Before the 19th century, a lot of the places that people would go to eat out, at least in Britain, were quite different. You'd go to an inn or an ordinary, and at these places, they would be set times for meals where you'd sit at a public table with a bunch of other people, and there would be a bunch of dishes laid out for you family style that you would pick up from. It wouldn't be like you would choose from a menu and you know decide the food that fit you best at the time. And of course, like all foodstuffs, people complained about it often. Um, I'm not sure that that suggests that food at Inns and Ordinaries were really bad. I think it's just that people love to complain about the food that they have to eat. The restaurant emerged as an urban space uh, for the pleasure and comfort of individual taste in France in the middle of the 18th century. It's named after this restorative bouillon that was meant for the weak, chests of the artistically unhealthy and from france it spread to all of those places that thought that french culture was the best britain russia vietnam um all these places have restaurant cultures imitating the french culture in britain uh these french cuisine restaurants were popular because they had all of the fine hoity-toityness of the french but also because Uh, The new kinds of French cuisine were incredibly labor-intensive. They required a lot of cooking, and a lot of servants, and a lot of plates, and a lot of knives, and a lot of uh, glasses and stuff, which could mean that if you wanted to entertain somebody in the new uh, style of French cooking, which oddly enough, it's called a la russe, you would have to spend a ton, not simply on the people to cook for you, not simply on the servants who would serve out each individual dish and take away the dishes, but also on the flatware and the china and the uh, silverware that it was eaten off of. So instead, a lot more people started to go out to eat. And they went out to eat not just to fill their bellies, not just to be on display, but to eat the fine food that was made by sometimes celebrity chefs. I mean, this might be one of the first times in British history where we get to know the names of famous chefs. There's Karem, who first presented big, ornate meals and hundreds of sauces and published cookbooks that people then tried to copy. Soyer, who was the chef of the Reform Society, who developed soup kitchens in uh, uh ireland to feed the hungry there and also pushed moderately priced meals Uh, he made technological innovations in the kitchen like huge ranges and gas cookers and water heaters and hot plates and mixers and other labor-saving devices that allowed him to turn the kitchen into a kind of machine um there is of course ritz and escoffier the hotelier and the chef who you know because of the ritz carlton hotel chain which was founded off of the organizational genius of ritz and the cuisine genius the uh gastronomical genius of escoffier and When I say genius, if I read to you guys the recipes, and if I did this for a lecture in class, I would. They do not sound very appetizing. They have like the weird kind of, you know, pea-heavy, white-sauce-heavy glock of 1950s cuisine. They're not, you know, fine dining by our uh, standards at all. But this kind of eating out had a lot of the aspects of dining we have today. The idea of eating was that you went there for an experience, something novel and exciting, something that allowed you to see the sensation of something new and incredibly refined, something that was imprinted with the artistic mark of the chef himself. But at the same time, as cooking was being elevated to a fine art, it was also being reframed as a science, as something that through the work of f- experts could be turned efficient. And note the subjects of this science were not the same people as the subjects of art. The people for whom this science was applied to were poor people, women who were thought to be in charge of buying food and cooking for working class households, soldiers, and children. These people were given advice, not always, you know, welcome advice, from a new realm of scientific dieting. I mean, people have always associated food with health, but this was a new kind of discourse about how to make food because it was connected with new ideas about science and society. People discovered that fat and carbohydrates and proteins were important for helping people live. And so they tried to figure out diets that would give people the cheapest servings of fat and protein and carbohydrates. The idea was simple. Look, science has shown that all you need from food are these nutrients. And so everything else that you eat in food is useless. I mean, the problem was, of course, that they didn't discover micronutrients, stuff like, you know, vitamins, not even to mention all of the crazy stuff that nutritionists think that you need today. And so as part of their uh, program, they would tell people, working class households, stop wasting money on all those vegetables because the vegetables are relatively low in all of those carbohydrates and starches and fats that they thought that people actually needed to survive. I mean, the big thing in working-class households that they were told not to get was wasting their money on meat and beer, which if you've eaten food, you know is often probably the most pleasurable part of dining. But whereas, you know, the rich and the middle class were given an artistic realm of dining where they were able to please their senses in this highly refined art, poor people were encouraged in the interests of efficiency and improvement and self-control to rid themselves of everything that was not utilitarian. Furthermore, hunger and health became a political issue, something that it was thought was in the government's hands to fix. Hunger, note, was no longer part of God's plan. It was no longer a message from the universe that people were doing things badly. And it was no longer something that educated people to do better. Gone is the Malthusian idea of hunger, uh, something that can teach people to stop having sex so much. Uh, And If you think that Malthus was just, you know, writing for glum academics uh, during the Great Potato Famine in Ireland, uh, people thought, well, look, Malthus teaches us that if we help them with food, uh, everybody will just keep on having babies, and so we should let the uh, famine go on without interference. Now, in the late 19th century, hunger is a social problem, a problem of a new kind of sphere of society, this new realm that can be understood and solved by the work of experts like dieticians and scientists and uh, social programmers. These ideas of, of accurate caloric intake were used by social planners like Sibaham Roundtree to figure out what the poverty line is, to figure out where people could be placed on this great chain of poverty, and they pushed things like cooking schools and home ec classes in high schools to teach people how to cook properly. And in the middle of this two-prong development of food as art and food as science, we have something that feels to me as really, really modern, as really urban. Um, something that whenever I go to a new city, I Uh, experience with relish, and that is fast food. So fast food, you know, is always something that workers uh, have recourse to as they go through their days. Uh, But I just want to talk a little bit about urban fast food because I find it really fascinating. Um, here's a list of food from Henry Mayhew's book London Labor and London Poor that you could get on a London street in the 1860s. Uh, If you went up to street traders, you could get hot eels and pea soup, pickled whelks, fried fish, sheep's trotters, baked potatoes, ham sandwiches, meat pies, boiled puddings, cakes, tarts, gingerbread, muffins and crumpets, ice cream, tea, coffee, and all of these different things. In the 1860s, also, you get something new, the fish and chip shop. Um, people ate in 1887 uh, 53,000 tons of fish. In 1911, that rose to 1 million tons. Uh, 25% of this fish ended up fried. 10% of the potato crop by 1900 ended up as uh chips, as french fries for fish and chips. And I want to close on this just because this does seem to be emblematic of a particular kind of urban Britishness, and I want to note how it is uh, really on track for the key ideas of this course, of this mini-series of cheap energy and new forms of organization. The fish that is caught comes from the North Atlantic, and it is a huge source of cheap protein. Uh, The cod fisheries off of Newfoundland were being exploited by people in Europe for hundreds of years because they were really, really easy and accessible ways to get protein, which was hard to get otherwise. Instead of using limited land to grow cows or chickens or pigs, you just went off in a boat and benefited from the massive cod bounties. Similarly, potatoes that make chips are part of this Colombian heritage, one of these incredibly high-yield, high-density crops that allows uh, Europeans to break through the Malthusian trap. And it is fried, heated up on burners fueled by coal or coal gas. So in closing, I want to just emphasize a number of the themes that have been coming out through this episode, and that is that this thing that we think of as eminently cultural food that really makes up a great deal of how we identify national identity, I argue has at its source these processes of international trade and search for cheap calories that are going to lay the groundwork of a lot of the social changes that we see in the 18th and 19th centuries thanks very much for listening to this episode of making of historian Uh, if you like the show rate and review us on itunes share us on social media uh, put us on reddit send me an email write on twitter about me and sing my praises and include a link to the show because it's sometimes hard to find Uh, Thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image, and I will speak to you guys tomorrow. Hopefully I'll be able to get another two episodes out and get done with this miniseries in a couple of days.